Hello guys, Abel here, back with another video, and in today's video I am calling out Dr. Mike Isretel. I'm gonna be destroying relationships, burning up bridges, it's gonna be crazy. Not really, I'm just kidding. But yes, I will be reflecting on the training concept slash training method that he popularized and that is increasing sets week to week and progressing with your training like that. What do I think about it? How do I program personally for hypertrophy? How does that differ from how Mike at Renaissance Periodization is programming for hypertrophy? And stuff like that is what I will be talking about. And first of all, I just wanna say that this is not a cool out video. This is not me trying to prove that Dr. Mike is wrong or he's an idiot, he doesn't know what he's doing. I'm just trying to highlight how two people can think differently about programming for hypertrophy. Both methods can be valid, but I think it will be interesting for you to see why these differences can exist. And since I like training, I like getting more muscular and I like to think about how to optimize your training to achieve that. When I see someone doing things differently, I wanna understand why that is the case. And I think this would be interesting for you as well. And I also just wanna point out as a disclaimer that I have an enormous amount of respect for Mike. He has been a very important influence on my overall fitness education. I also wanna say that he displayed a lot of integrity because I actually reached out to him and Eric Helms to discuss this on a roundtable debate sort of thing. And Mike was immediately down, which to me shows that he actually cares about getting the right answer, not just about getting right. And he is actually promoting this method because he believes in it. He thinks that this actually works well, not just because he wants to make a name for himself and be unique. So he is open to being challenged publicly. Unfortunately, this roundtable debate will not happen for a while, at least actually it was not convenient for a number of reasons for the participants, but Mike was open to this. So anyway, that is just something I want to clarify for the get-go, but with that, let's stop with the disclaimers and the intro and let's get into it. So I thought, first of all, I would kind of outline how I personally like to program for hypertrophy, and then I will get into how Mike likes to do that, and then I will kind of compare the two and illustrate why we have certain differences in what we are doing. So in a general sense, what I do when I sit down with a client and we set up his training or her training for growing muscle, maybe getting leaner, but the goal is always to get more muscular. First of all, I will have the exercises that I select for the person, which is nothing magical. It will be a blend of isolation and compound lifts. I will customize that based on needs, to a certain extent, personal preferences, injury history, certain indications, maybe the person's body structure, things like that. Then I will have my rep targets, which will be customized, but typically I like to work within the 60 to 80% intensity range, or sometimes I will give preset um, rep targets like 10 reps or 15 reps or something like that, depending on the client. Then we will have our intensiveness or intensity of effort, so failure proximity. I like to push people reasonably hard, so typically I will recommend training one or two reps shy of failure. So that could mean stopping a set when you can get that last rep, but you can definitely tell that the next rep you would fail, or maybe you could get that next rep, but it would be the worst grinder of your life. It would be like a five second concentric or something like that. So you stop the set there. And I like that because it makes tracking progress uh, very, very easy and convenient. And then volume. <gasps> the V word. So set volumes, I like to set to a level where I'm very confident that it will be effective, but it will also be sustainable. So I don't like to be like super conservative or super assertive here. So, you know, if you're curious what that set number is, typically it will be in the nine to 15 sets per week range per muscle group because I'm working with beginner to intermediate lifters for the most part, and that's just for a start. So it can always change in the future depending on progress and certain things that might happen over the course of working together. And I like to keep that pretty static in a general sense. So I don't change that week to week. And I also don't change proximity to failure week to week. Exercises, I also like to keep that pretty steady unless there is something like a person just really doesn't like a certain exercise or maybe a certain lift is just plateaued or something hurts or something like that. And from then on, for me, the name of the game is to increase load week to week or as frequently as we can, really. So if everything goes well, then I will get that person a whole lot stronger over the weeks and months. 
Now, that is not because I think that strength training and hypertrophy training is the same. It is not because I think there is a one-to-one -one correlation between strength gains and muscle gains. I know that the goal is not to get stronger, but to get more muscular. But since we know that in general, a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, since we know that past the point of mastering the movement, neurally adapting to the movement patterns, a big chunk of your strength gains will be explained by muscle growth. We can be confident that if you're gaining strength week to week or month to month, you're getting bigger. And conversely, we can also be confident that if you're not getting stronger week to week and month to month, you are probably not getting bigger either. So that is basically how it goes. That's my general approach. And then of course, the additional things on top of that, such as the volume blast phase, which is combined with reverse pyramid training, which is combined with carb cycling and some reverse dieting. That was just a joke. So that is how I'm doing things. And then how does Mike Isretel and his crew at Renaissance Periodization do things? So of course the fundamentals are all the same. So they will also pick exercises for the person's needs. That will also be nothing revolutionary, isolation lifts, compound lifts, you know, all tweaked to get the most amount of stimulus, least amount of fatigue, least joint pain, that kind of stuff. We also agree that you need to train close enough to failure because your training needs to be challenging enough. They also do enough volume to grow. They also don't want to run you into the ground with volume. So the fundamentals are all the same, but Mike and his team like to manipulate different variables over different time courses. So they will change your volume, your set volume week to week, which is of course what we are talking about here in this video. So they will start off with lower volume training and they will increase that volume number week to week until after maybe four to six weeks, you achieve your highest set volumes and then you might actually get into a slight overreaching phase and then you deload and then you rinse repeat that. So what happens is maybe we start at 10 sets per week. Next week we go to 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, deload to reduce fatigue. And I'm sure you guys know all about deloading from other sources. They will also change your proximity to failure week to week. So you will start off your training further away from failure, and then you will train much closer to failure by the end of a mesocycle. And then they will also increase loads week to week. So they will also look to get you stronger as the weeks and months go by. And I believe that is pretty much it. So the main difference is really what variables we manipulate over what time courses. Of course, I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with Mike Isretel's volume landmarks concept. So you have your minimum effective volume, which is the least amount of volume you can do and still grow. And then you have your maximum adaptive volume, which is sort of that sweet spot where you grow muscles the fastest. And then you have your maximum recoverable volume, which is not super productive towards muscle growth because most of your body's resources are going towards recovery and not towards actually growing muscle. So that's not super productive in the long term, but maybe you achieve that point over the course of a mesocycle once when you reach the end and you deload after that anyway. Now, what do I think of Mike's method? In a general sense, I think it's perfectly reasonable if it is executed well. So there is a video that I will be linking under the you know video description or whatever, where Mike explains how this progression over the mesocycle works. And it is perfectly reasonable. So it's not just you add sets, 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 and more sets because sets are what making you grow. No, it is auto-regulated. You use biofeedback and performance measures to dictate when you add sets and when you don't. What about volume number of sets? Here's the deal. We use a two-factor model here at RP and Juggernaut Strength for how to add sets or whether to add them and how many of them to add. The factor is perceived recovery based on soreness and actual recovery based on performance. We use soreness sort of as a hint and performance as a confirmatory measure. So here we go. It is very smartly set up. So in a general sense, I don't think there is anything fundamentally wrong or dangerous about this method. Why I personally don't use this particular progression method well, there are a couple of reasons behind this. Part of it is just practical, what I find to be the most practical for a client or for myself even. And then there are some theoretical or philosophical differences. So on the practical side, you have to keep in mind that we are just talking about a progression scheme. So the fact that I'm not using this, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, there is a billion progression schemes out there. You have to pick one, you cannot do all of them. So it's just the nature of the game basically. 
But from a practical perspective, what I don't find very practical about this particular progression method is that you're manipulating a little bit too many variables for my liking. So that's the first thing. So the reason I don't change your failure proximity week to week or your set numbers week to week is first and foremost, because it's making it more difficult to gauge your progress. So if I'm keeping your reps in reserve the same and your set numbers the same and you have gotten stronger from one week to the next, then I know that you have improved. I know you got stronger. I know that we did something right. If, however, you've gotten stronger, but you also trained closer to failure than on the previous week, well, we cannot really say that you improved because you trained harder, you also got stronger. So what really happened here? And if you also change your set numbers, then it makes this even murkier. So if you're manipulating more variables, it will also mean that you will have to wait a longer time before you can compare like to like. Otherwise, you're kind of just comparing apples to oranges. So if you're keeping more variables steady, your feedback is more frequent, basically. That is one benefit that I see with keeping more things steady and focus on low progression. Now, I also have to point out that when you become very advanced, it's not realistic to expect week-to-week -week progress anyway. So probably at that point, you will have to wait an entire mesocycle before you can evaluate your progress. So from that sense, maybe this progression method that Mike is using is more appropriate for more advanced lifters. When it comes to increasing set numbers week to week, which is kind of the elephant in the room here, first of all, I just want to say that there is nothing magical or magically evil about sets. We have to keep in mind that at the end of the day, hard sets, the number of sets in your program is just one method of quantifying your training volume. So when we debate over whether or not you should be adding more sets, it looks like we are debating whether you should be increasing your volume week to week. But we are not, because another way of quantifying your training volume is total volume load or training tonnage, which is sets times reps times weight. Now, if we were to quantify our volume that way, then we would be in complete agreement, because I do agree that that you do have to progress week to week, because if you're adding weight to the bar and you're matching your reps, your volume load, your training tonnage will go up. Now, I do agree that in a general sense, when we are comparing training programs, when we are designing a split for someone, then counting the number of sets is more practical than any other method for that matter. But for progressing through a mesocycle, I think adding sets week to week is a little bit an overly blunt tool because your rate of adaptation, your rate of strength gains week to week will be a couple of percent. It will be like one, two, three percent maybe. And that's one beauty of low progression because the amount by which you're able to increase loads week to week also happens to be only a couple of percent, one, two, three percent, maybe like five to seven percent if you're a ranked beginner and you can make large jumps in load. And by the way, before anybody comments that, well, but who cares about your rate of strength gains week to week, we are looking for hypertrophy gains. Keep in mind that your hypertrophy gain rates will be even less than that of your strength gains. So if your rate of strength gains is a couple of percent week to week, your rate of hypertrophy gains will be even less than that. So just keep that in mind. On the other hand, if you go from 10 sets to 11 sets on a muscle group, that's already by itself a 10% jump in volume load. And then of course you also increase loads on top of that. You're also progressing in weight. So more typically that jump in volume load with Mike's method will be more like, you know, 20% or even 30%. Like you would be lucky to have that if you're focusing on low progression in, you know, a couple of months at times. So I think, it's a little bit an overly blunt tool. And it's kind of like, I have this amazing kitchen knife, which I bought not that long ago, and it's amazing. Like I can cut through the most stubborn pieces of red meat, it's phenomenal. But if I wanted to get out a tiny little splinter from my hands, I probably wouldn't use that kitchen knife because it's just overly big, blocky, and it wouldn't just take out the splinter, it would take out everything. So that is why in a general sense, I prefer more so to bias things towards load progression and keep sets more steady. Now, at this point, I feel like I have to defend this stance a little bit more because the question could logically come up. Like we progress so many things throughout our training cycles, like reps, load, all kinds of stuff. Why not progress sets when the number of sets you're doing is so important for hypertrophy? 
And uh, when folks say, well, no, like adding sets, I don't know about it. That sounds crazy. Uh, and I don't mean to caricature them. Uh, it's a very reasonable position to have, but uh, we're just not sure why adding load is so preeminent and why adding sets is such a bad thing. And here's an argument, which is not the most scientific argument out there, but I think it is an argument nevertheless. And that is, if you look at what happens with your loads, so the, the amount of weight that you're lifting and your set numbers over the course of a training career, as you're going from beginner to advanced, not very muscular to much more muscular, loads will go up and up and up and up. There's just no way around it. If you go from a not too muscular person to a much, much more muscular person, you will be lifting drastically heavier loads by the end. And I'm not even saying that your loads will have to go up. I'm just telling you they will go up. It's unavoidable. I don't care how you think about training. I don't care if you care about strength. I don't care if you believe in the strength and size relationship. Show me one person who is not lifting drastically heavier loads at the elite level versus at the beginner level. You won't be able to show me that person. So your loads will have to go up. So from that standpoint, just logically, it makes some sense to say, you know what, since we know that if you want to go from this not so muscular person to a much more muscular person, you will have to go from benching, you know, 60 kilos for 10 reps to well over 100 kilos for 10 reps, we better increase loads from day one. On the other hand, if you look at sets and how many sets someone is doing over a course of a training career, you don't see super huge jumps all in all. So there will be a big jump initially, usually. Because if you think about it, the amount of sets you need to make solid muscle growth progress as a rank beginner might be one single set. However, the amount of sets that you need to do to make solid gains as an intermediate might be 10 times that. So there will be a big jump there. However, the amount of sets that you will need as an advanced lifter versus an, as an intermediate lifter, the difference won't be that huge. And this is something that we see again and again in real life. This is also something that we talked about in my volume month podcast series last year. Like I asked a lot of these advanced lifters with great physiques, you know, how much volume did you need to do when you were an intermediate to grow? It's like, eh, 15-ish. And how much volume are you doing now as an advanced lifter to grow? Eh, 15-ish. So after some point, the number of sets that you do will plateau out. It's not like when you go from beginner to intermediate to advanced, your requisite set numbers will go something like, you know, 5, 10, 25, 30. No, like they will kind of plateau out. So from that standpoint, if there is not this huge range of set numbers that you will need to exhaust over the course of an entire career, you know, decades, then why would we increase that week to week? Now, again, this is not the end-all, be-all argument, but I think it is an argument that makes sense. And then, you know, there are other things that we could talk about here. So Mike likes to use a lot of biofeedback, like soreness and pumps and things like that. And, you know, I don't use those myself that much, but I also don't think there's anything wrong with that. So on a fundamental level, I think collecting biofeedback is amazing. It's great. It has to be a factor in any intelligent program design. When it comes to pumps, I don't like to use that myself because the amount of inter-individual inter variability that I've seen with that is just a bit too large for me to rely on that particular measure. Like there are just so many things that can influence your pumps. Like how, how was your carbohydrate intake the previous day, your sodium intake? Did you rest a bit longer between sets or between reps? You know, did you go for a bigger stretch during the rep or did you like just stop shy of lockout? You know, a lot of things like this. Soreness, which... Sometimes Mike defines it differently. So sometimes he will talk about DOMS, in which case I do think that's a good indicator. Like if you're violently sore after a workout, maybe wait a little bit before you hit it again. Sometimes he defines soreness as I have the I worked out feeling in my legs. But if you have a reasonable like small pump and you're like, oh, yeah, my quads are definitely feeling it like Oof, the stairs felt strange, then you're probably good enough. It makes sense. I think I don't use it myself because, you know, if I have a client who is making steady gains week to week, getting gradually stronger on isolation lifts, compound lifts, lifts and everything, am I going to be worried if the person tells me, okay, so everything is going well, but I don't know, I don't feel my quads when I'm taking the stairs. Am I going to be worried? No. And with that, let's get into some of the more theoretical disagreements or philosophical disagreements that we have. And this will be interesting. I will play a couple of clips to you and I will comment on them. And then, uh, yeah, we will kind of see where the disagreements lies. So I think the first big philosophical disagreement that we have, and I think this one 
is the basis of a whole bunch of the other disagreements. So I think it's good to start with that. And that is the way we conceptualize the idea of overload. So if you listen to Mike, you will frequently hear him discuss overload as in you make your training harder and harder and harder over the weeks. The overload principle states two things. It's got two conditions. One, training needs to be fundamentally hard for you to get better. But it's got a two-part definition. The second part of overload is that training has to get harder over time. Just hard isn't good enough. You got to add and add and add. So to us, it's kind of like if you're going to make things, because every week in bodybuilding training or most weeks in the accumulation, you have a question is, I have to make things harder. How do I make them harder? And oddly enough, this sounds a lot like a Greg Doucette quote. Like, if you're not sore the next day, you can handle more and go harder. How hard? Harder than last time. Maybe they agree after all, like they had this big debate over Omar Isaf's channel maybe after all they are in agreement. But jokes aside, so that is one thing that I find interesting that Mike always defines overload as in you make your training harder and harder. And then the other concept is this idea of fatigue accumulation, like your fatigue accumulates over the weeks and over the course of a mesocycle. So every single mesocycle or every single microcycle you do of a mesocycle, you accumulate more and more fatigue that higher fatigue accumulation means that if you do not increase volume, you will see less hypertrophy. And it also means that if you do increase volume, you see more hypertrophy in that microcycle, but you get way more cumulative fatigue, and thus you see that the right-hand side of the curve, the distance between your maximum adaptive volume to your maximum recoverable shrinks considerably. And I think that can be the case if you set up your training in a certain way, but I don't think that's a given. So I don't think, first of all, I don't think that overload necessarily means making your training harder and harder. I think overload can also mean just keeping your relative difficulty, so the relative difficulty of your training the same, and just adjusting it based on how your capacities and your ability to tolerate fatigue and tolerate training stress increases. So basically the way Mike is thinking about it is that your training is easier and then it gets harder and harder over the weeks until you can tolerate no more fatigue and then you deload. The way I'm thinking about it is here is your ability, here is your capacity to tolerate fatigue and training stress and then we adjust your training stress to match that. Then your capacities increase and then we again adjust your training stress to match that. And it just goes up gradually and ideally your training stress is only increasing so that it matches your new capacities to tolerate that stress. So the absolute amount of stimulus increases, yes, but the perceived difficulty by you actually remains relatively speaking the same. So your fatigue is not really accumulating over the weeks. It kind of stays the same. Now, there might still be an argument to take deloads just, you know, as a just-in-case type policy, you know, maybe alleviate some joint stress or some niggles that may have accumulated because sometimes that is just inevitable, maybe just to take a psychological reset or something like that. But I don't think that this idea that your training is just harder and harder, fatigue accumulates until you reach this breaking point and then you deload and then you're fresh again. I, I think that can be the case if you're setting up your training in a certain way, but I don't think that is necessarily the case. Nevertheless, I think it's important to address that because if you think about overload as in you have to make your training more and more challenging over the weeks, then yes, adding sets makes more sense because you go from lower volume training to higher volume training. But I think it only makes as much sense in that particular paradigm. If you're thinking about the concept of overload the way I outlined it, then maybe it doesn't make as much sense. So the next concept that kind of emerges from that is this idea that your MRV, your volume tolerance, and by extension of that, your requirement for more volume is increasing over the course of a mesocycle. But there's another way to conceive of MRV, and that's something that's mobile every week. So every week that you train for the first few weeks of a cycle, your MRV actually goes up. Your hypothetical MRV, if you were to test it then, goes up. Why? Because your increase in recoveryability and your increase in work capacity become more efficient with the movements. And all of a sudden, you know, like once you're in week two or three, set, you know, five sets just it doesn't get you really sore, doesn't get you really fatigued, and you can do it no problem, you can recover no problem. Whereas in the first week, five sets was kind of crushing you. 
So if you listen to Mike, he will basically outline that in the beginning of a mesocycle, when you're fresh, you will typically just have deloaded. Then your sensitivity to volume is very high. Your sensitivity to training is very high. And at that point, you don't need a lot of volume. You don't need high loads or close failure proximity. However, over time, your body kind of becomes less and less sensitive to training. You can tolerate more volumes. Your work capacity increases and thereby you can benefit from more and more volume over time. So your theoretical MRV, your maximum recoverable volume, is going up over the course of the weeks. And because of a whole week of deloading, you're relatively detrained, your, ad your adaptive resistance is pretty low. Anything is gonna hit you because you've had a week of doing barely anything at all. Your MAV, maximum adaptive volume, is gonna be close to that 10 to 12 number. As soon as you hit that 10 sets per week, your maximum adaptive volume by the overload principle now goes up. You need more to grow your best. No coincidence, you hit 12, it goes up again. Then you hit 14, it goes up again. You hit 16, it goes up again. You hit 18, finally 20, you can't go up anymore. You recycle and repeat. And eh, maybe, maybe not. So I think in certain instances, I can definitely see that being the case. So as an example, I was out of the gym for almost four months because of the lockdowns and the gyms being closed. So when I went back there and I did a set of incline bench on the Smith machine, then yes, I could definitely tell that that one set was disproportionately fatiguing and disruptive compared to how it normally would be. I could also tell that over the weeks as I kept going back to the gym and kept doing that Smith incline bench, that one set became less disruptive. It kind of just became more normal. Now, to me, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, effectively, I was a newbie once again to those loads, and I was once again a newbie to that movement pattern, so I had to adjust to that neurally. My connective tissue may have had to adjust to it a little bit, so it makes sense that in the beginning it was disproportionately disruptive. Does that mean then that you can get the same sort of detraining effect when you're like disproportionately sensitive to a movement after a week of deloading? Maybe, maybe not. I think the jury is out on that. If we're in week two of a training paradigm and we're doing three sets of bent rows and in the first week, three sets get us a pump, a little sore, ooh, I feel it. If three, two or three weeks later, we do three sets of bent rows, even though we have increased the load on the bar or added repetitions, man, like you just, you guys ever get done doing a certain number of sets of something and you're like, man, I'm kind of just warmed up now. Like, and there's no way I'm not going to recover from four sets of bent rows. And the literature says that if I can recover and if I can continue to perform, I'll probably get bigger. So do I get to a point where I, let's say, did three sets of flag presses, which used to destroy me, and then three sets of flag presses after a couple of weeks is barely doing anything? I can feel like I could just do six to get a decent training stimulus? Like, no. <laughs> like, hell no. I mean... I guess, once again, it depends on how you're setting things up. Like if you started off with very easy training and very far away from failure kind of training, then maybe there is something to that. But in general, I think I could easily argue for the opposite. Like I think it's a pretty common experience that with certain movements, actually they become more stimulative over time because you're mastering the movement more. You're able to set it up for yourself so that it fits your body better. You can stimulate your muscles better and your connective tissue less so it becomes less injurious more stimulative like many people have this experience that with certain movements they're actually able to get more out from less or at least more out from the same amount of sets so yeah i don't really i'm not really on board with this idea that you just get to a point with an exercise where a certain number of sets is just not doing anything and then again so getting back to this idea of doing your minimum effective volume in the beginning of a training cycle and you train far away from failure. So, so we start at three reps in reserve on average, not because we think it's the best, but because it's more than enough to grow really solid muscle without injury risk and with very low fatigue in a first week. Now, the second week, third week, fourth week, it'd be weird if you just kept staying at three RIR and someone's like, why don't you go to two RIR and then one RIR? You're like, because you'll fucking die. I don't know. There is no good reason. So then you move up and up and up and then eventually you hit muscular failure and there's nothing wrong with failure. It's just not sustainable. But if you do it in your last week, you're good to go. You know, when Mike is talking about that, the argument that he's making for doing this is that those are easy gains, like minimum effective volume, far away from failure. That is the easiest gains you're ever going to get. Like, why not cash them in? Like minimal injury risk, minimal fatigue accumulation. Like, why would you skip on that? Now, I would assume 
that the argument here also means that at that point in time, you're somehow disproportionately sensitive to volume to where that low amount of volume with that four failure proximity is disproportionately stimulative. So essentially, at that point in time, that type of training is as stimulative as much higher volume training would be much closer to failure at another point in time. Is that the case? Maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure, but I also wanna point out that at this point we are debating something very, very theoretical. Like at this point we are literally debating what happens on a cellular level inside the muscle. So we are never gonna be able to prove whether like one side is right or the other. Nevertheless, I think it's interesting. I could be convinced about this. The jury is out. All right, so the next point of contention here is that if you're biasing your training towards load progression too much and not towards set progression, then effectively you can kind of corner yourself into this place where you're doing an amount of volume which is not enough to make you grow effectively. However, it is very good to make you stronger very effectively. So you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Like you're getting very strong, but you're not getting too much bigger. So you're petting yourself in the back, like good job, I'm, I'm doing great, but you're just getting stronger. You're not getting that much bigger. And it might also be injurious because heavier loads are gonna expose you to greater injury risk. Here's another thing. If you only, if you start with two sets, uh, uh, working sets, and you, you like, if I do two working sets, fuck, I'll accumulate very little fatigue. I'll be able to add a fuck ton of load throughout every week. Well, you're not getting a huge pump. You're not getting sore. You're not getting a mind-muscle connection. And are you fucking still bodybuilding? The, the answer is probably not. Yeah. What if you end up going two sets, three sets, four sets, five sets? Your workouts actually look more bodybuilding-esque the longer you train, which is probably going to mean that they continue to supply hypertrophy. Now, the recourse to that or the, the rebuttal to that is, but you're not going to get as strong. Who gives a shit? You're not trying to get strong strength is just something as a side effect of muscle growth. I would rather be Tom Platts squatting to, you know, 505 pounds or whatever for 21 reps than, you know, Dr. Squat who squatted the same weight for, if I remember for like just a set of 10, Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield had a max squat that was 200 pounds higher than Tom Platts, but Tom Platts just did more volume and more of his progressions were volume-based and rep-based. Uh, and, and it just seems to be like, that's what bodybuilding is more about rather than just load. I totally understand where Mike is coming from here. However, I also think that this addresses a problem which in the real life will basically never happen because it will solve itself. Because I think that in the long term, at least over months, if you're doing an amount of volume which is not effective at making you grow muscle, then it's also not gonna make you stronger. So yes, in the short term, you might be able to do that, especially if you were doing a high volume training before and you're switching over to lower volumes, you're dumping a bunch of fatigue and you're kind of doing a mini peaking cycle that a power lifter would do. Yes, temporarily, you might be able to increase your strength levels by quite a lot. However, in the long term, if you're not getting bigger, you're probably also not gonna get stronger. And this is something that I think many advanced lifters experienced at least one point that the nihilistic training bug kind of bit, bites you and you start doing low volume training, like just a couple of sets of bench, that's gonna be your chest training. And you go to the gym and you try to add, you know, 2.5 kilos to the bar every week and it works well for a while. And after some time, the weight just goes nowhere. Like you add weight to the bar, you lose reps. Next week, you try it again, you get the same amount of reps. Okay, now you drop the load, but you get the same amount of reps, like you just stagnate completely. So over time, you will have to increase your volumes even if you just want to gain strength. And guess what? If you increase your volume sufficiently, probably you will also get bigger. So in the long term, I think this washes out. Now, do I think that you can bias your training more towards gaining strength and not as much muscle? Sure, like I guess you could find that kind of sweet spot where your volume amount is just at the very, very low end of what could be effective for hypertrophy, so you're gaining disproportionately more strength compared to muscle. Yeah, sure, you could do that. But I think in the long term, it just washes out. You know, powerlifters that are getting very, very strong and not as big as bodybuilders, well, first of all, in the real life, they're also usually pretty fucking big, but they're also training very differently. So they are doing all kinds of like peaking cycles and tapers and accumulation phases and then dropping fatigue, lower volume phase to actualize the strength. So all kinds of stuff. But you know, once you're doing a fundamentally bodybuilding type program with moderate rep ranges and all of that stuff, you know, not doing anything crazy to peak your strength, 
those two things tend to go together. So anyway, the next thing here is that biasing your trading progression too much towards load progression is injurious. So a lot of times guys will say, well, I put more load on the bar instead of doing more sets. Why? Right? It could get you more hurt. I don't know about you guys, but like if I have to bent row 200 pounds, uh, this is just unlikely that I'm going to get hurt no matter how many sets of that I do. I'll just get tired and my performance will fall. I'll just feel like a piece of shit. But I'm not tearing my lat at 200 pounds in the bent row. But if I do from 315, I go up to 365 in the bent row. I don't know. Yeah, 365 might tear my ass up even at two or three sets. So I think this could be an issue in two specific instances. One instance is if you could turn yourself into freaking Godzilla overnight and you could add like 30 kilos to your bench press, you know, 10 RM overnight, yes, then it could be a problem because your muscles and your connective tissue could probably just not handle that crazy jump in loads that quickly. However, that is kind of the beauty once again of load progression is that it only gonna happen so fast you know, week to week, how much are you increase your loads? You know, 2.5 kilos, sometimes even less. You're not going to get hurt by that. By the time you actually get to the point where you can bench press, you know, 30 kilos more or 20 kilos more, you will be a different person muscularly and probably also connective tissue wise. Like your overall structure will be much better able to handle those greater loads. So with the incremental process that is low progression week to week, you're not going to get hurt. And interestingly, if you think about it, by the time someone is really plateaued out with their hypertrophy gains, like when you're an advanced lifter and you're not really growing any bigger, that's usually also the time when you're not getting that much stronger either. So for example, my biceps, which I always joke about, it's my worst body parts. It basically hasn't grown like barely at all for the last year or maybe even longer. Ironically, it's also not really getting that much stronger at this point because probably this biceps is just not meant to handle crazy high loads and it's also not meant to be 20 inches or even 17 inches for that matter. Now, if I drank the magic potion like I don't know, three grams of trembolone, and all of a sudden I could go from the 17.5 kilo point in the cable stack to the 35 kilo point, then yeah, I think I could be at significant risk of tearing my biceps because it would be just a crazy jump in the loads. But in the real world, it's never gonna happen because my biceps are just not meant to handle those loads and I just cannot get that strong. And then that kind of brings us to the other instance in which this could be an issue, you know, prioritizing low progression could get you into trouble. And that is if you're training like a power lifter and you're preferentially lifting the heaviest possible weights with low reps. We all know how, how much load correlates to injury in, in bodybuilding. Like guys aren't tearing their pecs out here inclining 225 for sets of 15. They're tearing pecs inclining 405 for sets of three for no good fucking goddamn reason. Uh, there's a group of studies on bodybuilders, Highland Games and strongman athletes and weightlifters and powerlifters that shows the injury risk for bodybuilding is the lowest out of all those. So yes, Mike brought up the idea that powerlifters are getting injured much more frequently than bodybuilders, but they're also training differently. It's not just what they prioritize. It's also the fact that they are doing heavy doubles, triples, and fives maybe. It's also the fact that they are forced to do certain movements, whether or not it fits their body structure. Like everybody will have to bench and deadlift and squat, even if you're not really cut out for that movement from a biomechanics body structure standpoint you're also doing doing those movements a lot which you know overuse injury could be a problem so i don't think that's a fair comparison people will say like you know that's how you get ronnie coleman's legs squatting 800 for two well that's not true at all he probably could have gotten even bigger legs and gotten less hurt yes i am comfortable saying that if he just stuck to like the 600 to 650 range for sets of 10 or 12 like absolutely that's the case Ronnie Coleman, once again, is especially not a fair comparison because what did Ronnie Coleman do? He was doing heavy doubles and triples for no goddamn reason. I agree with that. He also had the magic potion, which is a lot of gear, which probably allowed him to lift much heavier weights than what he could have otherwise. So yes, that is a perfect recipe for destroying your body. But you know, in general, if you're just biasing your training towards increasing loads, I don't think that's a significant risk for injury. But the adding sets thing seems to be on sturdier theoretical foundation at least from that perspective, because if you take that adding load to its sort of like uh, reductio ad absurdum conclusion, then the strongest people in the world and thus the, the best bodybuilders should be the people to be essentially the same people, which people like Lyle McDonald say is true for naturals, which is just make belief, which literally just made that up. Um, but of course, everything changes when you're using drugs, which is also bullshit. But 
Now, at this point, I feel like I have to defend Lyle McDonald a little bit because he didn't say that the strongest naturals are the biggest naturals. It may have come across like that, and you know, I can completely understand that Mike doesn't really feel like being charitable towards Lyle because of their personal disagreements and whatever. But what Lyle said is that with naturals, at least, the person who is going to get much more muscular over the years will also get a lot stronger. Like you will not see a person who is much more muscular than they were five years ago or 10 years ago and is not also considerably stronger. I don't think we can debate that, but it's just what happens. But I don't think he would say something as stupid as the strongest natural is the biggest natural. Like he will also tell you anytime that you can have a person who is much bigger than another person, even though in terms of absolute strength, the person will be weaker. And he will also not recommend that you do heavy doubles and triples. Like he will also recommend that you train in the moderate kind of rep range, you know, six to 20 reps or something like that. And that's something he will emphasize all the time. So that's just something I want to clarify. And personally, I don't know if drugs change this. Maybe I could see that the problem that Mike outlined, that you could be doing an amount of volume, which is not effective in making you grow, but is effective at making you stronger, could be a legit issue with drugs because they will make you grow no matter what. Like even if your volume would otherwise be too low, now you can get away with it because you're taking drugs. So maybe it could be an issue in that case. But to be honest, I don't fucking know. Because people say, you know, adding one set is too much. If that's the case, don't add a fucking set. But it could be that adding five pounds to the bar is like barely making a fucking difference. And then you have to add like three reps. And then the next week you add another three reps to keep your RIR at a target and add another five pounds. And all of a sudden you're outside of your rep range. And you kind of have a choice as to how to go about it. You can, let's say add 15 pounds a week to the bar and just do three sets per session. And that will reach, you know, eventually you'll put 45 pounds on the bar total after three weeks or whatever, but just three sets the entire time. Or you can only add five pounds to the bar every single time, only increasing by 10 pounds. All right. So I've heard two things here. Adding five pounds to the bar is barely making a difference. Then I heard you add 15 pounds in a week. I've done things on the Smith machine, this is embarrassing as fuck. Like we'll add a two and a half to one side of the Smith machine, like every week. So basically we add five pounds every two weeks. Like that's fucking insulting, but that's the level of which we're gaining. And then I heard it's an embarrassment that he only puts 2.5 kilos every other week or something like that. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think this is what it's like to be humbled on camera. So if that is a problem for you, that five pounds on the bar is barely making a difference, or if you could add 15 pounds to the bar, then I'm sorry. Like close this video and nothing is relevant for you here. Just you're busy getting ready for your bodybuilding competition or powerlifting competition anyway, which you will win by the way. So don't even worry. But yeah, I mean, Honestly, I just don't see how these things are relevant concerns. I mean, if I was to add 2.5 kilos to the bar every other week on certain lifts, man, like I would be the Incredible Hulk by now. Like that's that's just not going to be a concern. Now, I don't know the context in which he's saying this exactly. So maybe this already assumes that you're changing your RIR because, yeah, if you're training closer to failure over the weeks, then, yeah, I guess you could make larger jumps in weight. But yeah, I mean, in general, I just don't see that. Like if you're able to add five pounds to the bar, you're almost never going to be in a position where that's barely making a difference other than maybe when you're like a ranked newbie or something. But anyway, let's continue. So that would be that. And then the next point of contention is basically coming down to this idea that all things being equal, so you're recovering well, you're able to increase your weights and whatever, you're not too sore, all of those things are good, then more sets is better. More sets will correlate with more hypertrophy. If you always stop short of your MRV, how do you know how far short of your MRV you're stopping? But for us, if you don't reach MRV, how do you know you're not like, two thirds of the way to the shit. And then they see us doing like four sets a session. They're like, why don't you do eight? And if you've never been to your true MRV, which might be 12, you have no good answer to that. You're like, well, four is good enough. And they're like, wouldn't you get more hypertrophy with six and then eight sets? You're like, no, no, maybe no. And they're like, I, they, the hard, the hardcore Wolfpack people would never say this, but they're like, the literature says that most people get better hypertrophy at six and then eight sets. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. You know, a year ago, I kind of said something similar in a video. And I'm sort of going back and forth on this. I'm honestly just not sure if that's true at this point in time. And this really comes down to how you conceptualize both the inverted U curve of volume and hypertrophy, that dose response curve, 
as well as the volume landmarks concept of Mike Isretel. Basically, if you look at the volume landmarks concept and you say, okay, we have our minimum effective volume, maximum adaptive volume, and maximum recoverable volume, I think it's easy to conceptualize that as, okay, so there is an amount of volume which is not gonna make me grow, there is an amount which will make me grow, but very slowly, and then there is like max muscle growth, and then over that it's like, walk, walk, I'm not growing muscle anymore. It's a lot more nuanced than that. In reality, I think what happens is there is an amount of volume which will make you grow but slowly. There is an amount which will theoretically get you the maximum amount of muscle growth. And then there is a lot of overlap between that and the amount of volume which will like not make you grow at all because it's too much. So after you achieved maximal rates of muscle growth, there is probably an amount of volume which will get you the same amount of growth but just with more work then there is an amount which will slightly slow down your gains, but with more work. And then it will be a gradual process. And by the time you get to the point where you're not making gains because you're doing so much, you will have done just a crap ton of volume. So to give you an example, because I think this is important, let's say that your optimum level of volume, which will get you the most amount of gains theoretically, is 15 sets, just as an example. Let's say that the amount of muscle that you can grow in a month, if everything goes perfectly, is one pound. Okay, that's pretty good. That's 12 pounds in a year. Now, if 15 is the maximum and one pound is the maximum, then let's say anything under six sets is not gonna make you grow at all. Between six and eight sets, you're gonna grow muscle, but very slowly. Anything over eight is pretty decent. And then if you work all the way up to 15, then you're going like max muscle, amazing, everything is great. And then if you go from 15 to 17 to 19, you're probably just growing the same amount of muscle just with more work. You're just doing more sets, growing the same amount of muscle. Now, if someone is asking you, so you did 19 sets last year, did it work? The answer is hell yeah, fucking hell yeah. Like I grew 12 pounds in that year, like 19 sets, amazing, 19 sets for the win. 15 was the optimal. You didn't slow down your gains by doing 19, you still grew maximal amount of muscle, but it was more than what was needed. Now, if you go from 19 to 22 to 25, at this point, you're probably actually slowing down your gains. You're still growing a lot of muscle. Like you might still grow 0.8 pounds of muscle per month. Like that's still gonna be what? Like 10, 11 pounds per year. If someone asks you, so did you grow well on 25 sets per week? The answer is fucking hell yeah, I grew 10 pounds of muscle. That, that was amazing but you actually slowed down your gains and you did 10 more sets than what was needed. And then if you go from 25 to 30, like you might slow it down even more, but you're still making gains. That's the thing, you're just slowing it down. And only if you just push it up to a crazy extent, something like 40 sets or something, maybe only then you're getting to the point where you're not making progress. And I think this happened to me in the past. I pushed my volume up to crazy, crazy high levels. But you cannot tell, you're, like you're still making gains, you're still recovering, you're still able to provide an overload, but you can never really tell where you are in that inverted U of dose response volume and hypertrophy type curve. So, or more sets, better, all things being equal, only if they are, I would say. Yes, on a group level, we do see that more sets in general tend to correlate with more gains. However, on an individual level, if you're making solid gains, I think it's worth valuing that. Like more sets might just make you grow equally just with more work. Now, is it the end of the world if you experiment doing more volume at times? No, like you might see immediately that things are just working better. So I think it's nothing like necessarily fundamentally wrong with that idea but I don't necessarily see it as black and white as sometimes it's outlined here that, you know, like more sets are going to make you grow more. So if you're saying to someone, okay, at the end of this mesocycle, you started squatting 500 pounds for three sets of whatever number of reps. Do you want to end up at 550 pounds for the same number of sets and reps? Or do you want to end up at 510 or 515 pounds, but be doing like four or six uh, sets instead of three. And you can also ask the question of at the end of those numbers, which one of those is it four, four to six sets of 515 taken to failure? Or is it three sets of 550 taken to failure? Which one of those is going to produce more hypertrophy? The almost always, you know, unless the person has exceeded their MRV or it's really three sets, which is unlikely per session, the person doing four to six sets 
with a slightly lower weight, uh, even if the repetitions end up being really similar because the fatigue accumulation, the person doing more sets just as close to failure is probably going to experience more hypertrophy than the person doing fewer sets. Okay, so this one is actually interesting. So who would I bet on? Someone who can do, what was it, 550 pounds for three sets versus someone who can do 530 pounds for six sets? Uh, but first of all, it depends on how he means it. So does it mean that we kept reps the same throughout all sets? Because then obviously, if you can repeat something for six sets with the same weight and same reps, that means that the first set was very, very easy. So it actually means that you're stronger. You could have lifted like 580 pounds probably for 10 reps if you went to failure. So if that's the case, then obviously I would bet on the one who can repeat the same amount of reps for more sets. However, if it just means doing more sets and both train like, you know, one rep away from failure with that weight, I don't know. I may actually bet on the person who can lift more weight for less sets because he could do more sets as well if he wanted to. He just stops at three. So it's, it's kind of a weird comparison. If in general, the question is, would I bet on the person who is stronger but doesn't have that great of a work capacity versus the person who is not as strong but has a much better work capacity? That's tricky. That's a bit theoretical. I, in general, we know that a bigger muscle is a stronger muscle, so that's a very good indication. Is more work capacity equivalent with greater muscle size? Not always. Like we see some incredible physiques with piss poor work capacity. Like there are like, I don't know, Jeff Alberts in the natural realm would be a good example of that. Like he just doesn't tolerate volume very well and he loses reps very quickly. So, you know, like he would be an example of someone who has poor work capacity, very strong and also very impressive physique. So that that's kind of tricky. And then another example, which Mike likes to bring up, you know, like CrossFitters, like these people have crazy, amazingly good work capacity. Are they the biggest? No. So yeah, it's kind of a weird comparison. I don't know. If I had to bet on someone, I may bet on the person who is stronger, actually. But anyway, I thought it was just interesting to include in here. Let's continue. Actually, we are not going to continue because we are finished. So as you can see, most of my concerns or most of my reasons for not programming this way are just practical stuff. What I see to be the most practical for myself or for the clients that I train. Um, but I do think that you can make this approach work perfectly fine. If you are trained by a competent coach, if you're educated by competent people, which Mike is and his crew is, I know, composed of perfectly competent coaches. So look, uh, you're going to be fine. Whether you're doing my method or his method, you're going to be fine. Like, you know, after every single video that when I'm discussing a training concept or diet concept in detail, some motherfucker comes in the comment section and says, like, why is all this overcomplication? Just do what you enjoy. And... The first reaction I have is I'm going to just fucking choke the goddamn life out of you. And then the second reaction I have is like, they are fucking right. Like at the end of the day, what are we talking about? Like maybe if you're optimizing things by another couple of percentages, you're going to grow muscle like, you know, 50% faster, you know, best case scenario. So great. You, you might achieve your genetic potential in four and a half years versus in three years. Great. Like, are we going to lose sleep over this? Hell no. So yes, I think whatever you enjoy very much has a merit as long as it is reasonably intelligent and as long as the fundamentals are fulfilled, then you're going to be fine. So I think Mike's method is completely okay. We have some theoretical disagreements and I think a lot of it is just simply debating like whose argument is more logical. So it's almost like an intellectual kind of masturbation thing, which I love. And that's why I would love to discuss this with Mike in person and on podcasts. Hopefully I will have the chance to do that. If that roundtable debate is going to happen between Mike Israel and Eric Helms, I would absolutely love to host that. And I do think I would be the best person to host that. Um, if you've seen my previous roundtable debates, you might agree. So please vote for me. Who should host that debate? Able. Uh, so hopefully it will happen. It would be an honor to do that. But anyway, I hope that this gives you guys uh, some idea as to why I do things the way I do them, um, how I see Mike's you know, set progression type method. And anyway, let me know what you think of all of this. I may do a part two on this, um, depending on what kind of shit show happens in the comment section. But I hope you like this video. Like it if you like this. Subscribe for more content like this. Share this around and check out the description for coaching and all of those things if you want to be coached and mentored and huged by me. So anyway, thanks for your attention and see you in the next video.